Good morning. It's a Saturday morning here. It's about 7.20 Eastern Standard Time. As usual, I have my uh, delicious coffee ready to go. Hold on. I was just listening to a podcast where the host, I like it a lot, she did a piece on uh, James Baldwin, Jimmy, and she was drinking bourbon with cubes in it, so every so often she'd reach over for a sip of bourbon. I don't know. I like stuff like that. It humanizes things. I don't I don't trust stuff that's too perfect. You know, it means that people have spent a lot of time crafting an image. And I don't mean it should be sloppy or it should be messy or unprofessional or not not well done in terms of content, but I don't know. I like to see the reality of life. I like things to be real. If things sound too good or look too good, one can be assured that didn't happen by accident. It was very intentional. Soren's developing the idea of doubt here as a function of faith that these two things work together, like an object and a shadow. Uh, the shadow reveals an object, uh, even though Soren, I don't think, uses that metaphor in this essay on the expectancy of faith, it makes sense that the object creates a shadow and the shadow reflects, or that doesn't really reflect the object, but is uh, uh, kind of the image of the object, if that analogy lines up. We've got a lot of rain here in Pennsylvania this week. It's April, uh, so that's pretty standard. Uh, still was able to get in three times to play disc golf. Uh, one of the advantages of being retired is I can craft my schedule to work around the rain. It was slushy yesterday down in Book Miller Park in Lancaster City, a little south of the city. It's a great course. It's only a, every, every, uh, every hole is a, a par three. But some par threes are harder than others, that's for sure. But we've had a lot of rain this week. Uh, it's been soggy. I have to wait on cutting my grass because uh, the grass needs to dry out a bit before I can run the mower over it. So spring is starting. Um, so I took advantage a couple of days ago when it was raining. It was quite soggy outside to go out and dig up my garden again. I, I didn't have a garden last summer, which was unusual. I, I enjoy having a garden. Uh, it reminds me of God's goodness of... The creation, uh, there's beauty in it, there's functionality, there's nutrition. I like the self-sustaining nature of a garden. I'm going to have kale this summer and then hot peppers like jalapenos, maybe another hot pepper, something along those lines, like a Thai pepper or something, and then some tomatoes. Uh, and then I also bought some, uh, some seeds that are called the Three Sisters, which is a Native American planning strategy of squash green beans and corn and they um they do different things to the soil they provide a, a different nutritional profile and they also work together i kind of just kind of um, explain this and expand upon it the corn grows and the, and the beans the green beans wrap around the stalk of the corn and the squash uh protects the ground cover from weeds because it goes out if you've ever seen like uh how squash grows like zucchini i call them the fascist of the garden because they are they'll take everything else over but that provides ground cover 
and will keep the soil intact and also keep the weeds down. So it was rain, been raining a lot, so I decided to go out and dig out the garden because I didn't have the garden last summer and it had become full of weeds and grass. And the best time to pull that stuff out or to hoe it out is when the ground is wet. The dirt is much more willing <coughs> to let go <coughs> Excuse me, of the root systems of undesired pr- plants when it's wet. And I'd already done it a couple weeks ago. It's just stuff that's coming back. So I have to just be at it until I plant. I probably won't plant these three sisters and the other things until a little bit later in April. Uh, The three sisters are seeds, so I have to give them a little more time. I typically buy the other plants already already sprouted at the local nursery, the tomatoes and jalapenos and um, the kale, whatever. So we continue to work through this uh, expectancy of faith chapter in the 18 Upbuilding Discourses. Soren's saying this already. You see where he's going to some extent. I went back and reread from the beginning until now just so I could reacquaint myself with uh, Soren's train of thought. And he's basically making the case that all things work out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And that's a verse in Romans that the Apostle Paul writes. The Apostle Paul was well acquainted with trouble. Um, his life was full of trouble, just like Jesus' life was full of trouble. And we're coming up on Easter Sunday here in a week. And that's a great example, the ultimate example of how all things work out for good for those who are called by God according to his purposes because Jesus himself was crucified. Uh, most, Even most skeptics believe that. They just don't believe he was raised from the dead. But we call it Good Friday. And, you know, it's either the greatest fraud in history that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. It's, it's a fraud. That's all it is. It's the biggest fraud if that's indeed what it is. But Christians call the crucifixion Friday, Good Friday. That's quite a term to attach to a crucifixion. And that's theology. That's theology right there, because Christians base their faith on the reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Yup, it's weird. Yup, it's unusual. Yup, it's strange. But there's no other way to explain the series of events Uh, unless that's part of the story. Uh, Paul says that if Jesus is not raised, your faith is in vain. We are to be pitied above all men. So he's honest about that. But doubt functions uh, as a way of deepening faith. We have to pull the doubt. We have to let the doubt do its work. We, we, uh, We remove it by action, but we don't avoid it. Doubt will grow doubt will continue to persevere and get stronger if we don't take it on head on with the truth I went out and bought another uh, Kierkegaard book because it was mentioned in, uh, in an article it's called um, Philosopher of the Heart The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard and it was written by Claire Carlyle so I'll be using that today I will also be referring to of course the 18 Upbuilding Discourses Edited and translated by Edward V. Hong and Edna H. Hong. 
So I went and got a library card this week because I want to start to access more books about Sorn and not have to actually pay for them. And uh, I joined a book review service uh, that I can review books for free if I do indeed read them and write a review. And it's a lot of digital downloads, which is, makes sense that they don't have to send the book to me through the postal mail. And I noticed that one of the uh, publishers on this website that I joined, it's called Edelweiss, of all things. Edelweiss! Edelweiss! Um, but Princeton University Press is on that, so I have to figure out a little bit more on the details of how this thing works. I do have a a book on Lincoln to read called The Fire of Genius or something of Lincoln's uh, promotion of technology and science during his reign. I won't get into that right now. I, I could go. As you guys know, I am a ranter. I'm a raconteur, but a ranting. A ranting raconteur. I'm not even pronouncing that correctly. It was funny at the library, the uh, the volunteer misspelled my name and the website wouldn't work as a result. And uh, yeah, they're volunteers, like I was saying, she's an old lady. And wasn't quite on top of it and I was trying to be super patient it was very frustrated because the website's not designed properly and then they had my name wrong and they got it straightened out I don't know that's alright it's okay another thing that I would say is sometimes I speak off the top of my head I want this to be a lot like jazz uh, that I have good technique I know music I'm just making an analogy between this and Soren Kierkegaard, I, I like to speak off the top of my head because I find actually if I think about things too much, it's not good. I wind up um, truncating my message if I try to polish it up too much. The downside of speaking uh, off the top of my head is I will make factual errors. And I've decided the way I'm going to handle it is I will put into the show notes uh, on the specific episode where I made an error, what the error was, and what the correct answer is. It doesn't make sense to like correct the errors in another podcast, because that's assuming that people maybe listen to the original podcast, and that's not necessarily going to be the case. So the show notes, I can go back and edit them after I'm done, the actual podcast. I go back and revise them. I'll put in the notes. Um, so I did that twice recently. As you noticed, if you read the show notes, is that the guy that was almost beaten to death on the Senate floor was not Seward. It was a guy named Sumner. Uh, this is around the uh, Civil War time, before the Civil War. And also the owner of the slave, Onesimus, in the Bible, is not Titus, it's Philemon. And I corrected both those things. So I pardon if you know when I make a mistake during the podcast and then uh, I know that might bother some people Mm, I will try to be a little bit more careful if I'm not sure about something or always preface it as I did that in both these cases I think it was this person I'm pretty sure it was this person but guess what (laughs) I was incorrect before we head to Soren here a couple more housekeeping things just to kind of uh, you know sweep things up a bit I've had two offers recently to be paid for the podcast, for the episodes. One is to have go, have guests come on that obviously try to sell something, maybe a book or a product. I'm not real comfortable with that because unless it's about Soren Kierkegaard, I don't want to try to um, twist this podcast to fit a speaker. 
the speaker has to come to the table when you talk about Soren Kierkegaard. I don't care what you're selling. I don't care what your book is. It has to be something that I can justify connection to Soren Kierkegaard. So I am thinking I'm going to decline that. I declined it already, but continue to decline it. But maybe I'll take a look at what the guests offer. There may be people out there that have relevant content. Soren is ultimately the guest on this show. My job is to read his material, reflect upon it, and process it, and let Soren have the lead. Uh, It's a bit difficult to do sometimes, but that's what my goal is. I'm also at the point in Anchor where I can actually start having ads that are interspersed within the podcast itself. And here's my philosophy on them, my take on it. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, If it's an ad of something that I believe in, then I wouldn't be against having it in the podcast because I think one of the problems we have with our age is that a lot of people that create content, whether they're musicians, uh, writers, anybody that can put something in in a digital format and make it available, as we know, a lot of these people aren't being paid properly. You know, they're creating all this stuff, and it's particularly true for musicians more than anybody, but it happens to writers too. I am not intrinsically against that. When I listen to podcasts, I understand that's a part of the trade that I'm getting content. I love The Daily Stoic, for example, by Ryan Holiday. It's meant a lot to me the last couple of years to listen to that uh, ep- those episodes. And he's a really good interviewer, and he's opinionated, and I like that. And he has integrity. He doesn't seem like he's just becoming a shill for stoicism to... to make money and put money in the bank he he truly believes it he tries to practice it but you know when he goes and does this thing about a service or a product i say that's part of the deal here i i'm getting this content for free and it's benefited me greatly and uh it's just part of the deal here's where my dilemma is i don't want the ads to be things i don't believe in so what came first you know the chicken or the egg type of idea I don't want to have an ad because there's an ad that's available. I want it to be something I believe in. I am a believer, for example, in really good coffee. I like coffee to be, you know, direct trade if possible. I like it to be organic if possible. I like it to be from a country that has Arabica beans versus Robusta if possible. And I'm willing to pay for it. Uh, So if I had a coffee company that had those attributes reach out to me and say hey we'd like to sponsor your podcast yeah sure why not you know i like your coffee uh another thing is like i'd be a terrible salesperson if there was a product i didn't believe in or i was more neutral about like i wasn't into the product but i knew i needed to pay bills i'd be the world's worst salesperson i just couldn't do it but I thought, like, I could probably sell a Honda automobile because I have Hondas. You know, I've had Hondas for years, for a couple uh, couple decades. And uh, my current car has, like, 210,000 miles. It's a Civic. Uh, no major problems since I bought it. It had some wear and tear issues about 20,000 miles ago, which were difficult. But I fought through them, and the car is still running. The engine is fine, I think, and the transmission is holding up. So I could sell Honda. So if there's a Honda employee out there in management and you're high up, uh, I could become a promoter for Honda cars. Sure. Why not? I believe in that. So I have to believe in something before I'll 
I'll, I'll take it on. So I have to debate that a bit. I, I don't know. I'll see what the ads are and if they're decent and I could in good conscience put them as part of the podcast. I might. I apologize ahead of time if that bothers you. I do believe people that do work should be paid for it. Um, but I think there's a fine line uh, between that and somebody that starts selling stuff that they don't believe in because they're more into the money than the message. And I'm concerned about that. And I don't, never want to become the person that's beholden to a buyer. I just I want to be able to speak my mind. I spent most of my life being very, very diplomatic about things that I felt very strongly about. But I realized it wasn't my role to be super, super opinionated. I was opinionated. If people thought I was opinionated in my places where I had to be diplomatic, they have no idea of what I actually didn't say that I felt I could have said, but I didn't because I didn't want to cross problems for people. That was part of the deal. Uh, so I have to believe in something before I'm allowed on this podcast. And if I get paid, I don't consider that a negative. I consider that a positive. I mean, I'm okay financially, but who wouldn't want to have more money? There's more opportunities to create the message and to get behind the message and to promote the message. And I'm in the marketplace of ideas. As you've probably figured out, I'm conservative. That's willing to call out conservatives. I'm willing to identify the hypocrisy in the movement. You know, conservative Christians and evangelicals in particular. I'm extremely hard on people that say they believe in the truth. I'm extremely hard on people that say they should that we we promote a God of integrity and of justice and of mercy. And if I find Christians not acting that way, myself included, I'm going to turn on the heat because uh, that's the way that we get those impurities out of the body, just like a fever. So the church right now is stumbling and. It's losing its credibility. It's hard enough to be a Christian in this world without all the additional baloney that we've taken on. So I model what I want to I want to have happen. It's like when I worked in a school. Like you know, there's some big big issues that I promoted to the kids, but I modeled them first. Like come to school, have good attendance, work hard. Not perfectly, but work hard. Give your best effort. Be honest. It's okay to. Uh, make mistakes it's okay to not have it all figured out it's okay to have problems but just be honest about them don't make me do your work where i have to go track down your story and see if it's it's truthful or not you know be forgiving uh, be temperate you know stay away from drugs and alcohol when you're young i, I model hopefully temperance with beer i like to drink uh but i try i've been really disciplined uh, since i've been retired in particular to not just go down that dark hole of drinking alcohol and disappearing you know, I just, I force myself to drink in such a way that I almost institute temperance. I wait until it's later in the day. I make sure I always have food. Um, I stay away from the hard stuff, even though I have it. You know, occasional drinks and bourbon, not often. You know, I just like having it for whatever reason. So whenever I worked with the kids at school, I tried to model the qualities I wanted to see them actually have. Attendance, work hard. Uh, be honest, be forgiving, be temperate, have a sense of humor, uh, those kind of things. One last thing before we dive into Soren here. Sorry about all this housekeeping stuff. Um, few other things. I know when I listen to other people's podcasts and they have pet phrases where they say the same thing over and over again. You know, it's like, isn't anybody else listening to this podcast and making you aware that you have these linguistic patterns where you use this as a refrain where it doesn't make sense? Like people get into these ruts of speaking where they, they use these pet phrases or these 
pet sentences, and it's way beyond what they should be doing. Uh, I know I do that too. So there has to be people out there that are like, hey, podcast is good. It's a work in progress, but you got to be careful of the following things. Um, like I say, um, a lot. Why did we decide to say um? I don't know. It's the weirdest thing to me. Why is that the one of the refrains that we resort to? I say you know a lot. I can't stand that. I mean, when I listen to the podcast, I'm like, I said, you know again. So I'm working on it. I don't like that either. I also say so a lot uh, when I transition phrases. I'm working on discarding these things. It's extremely difficult. All I can say is when I hear it in other people, I think it's sloppy because they don't have other people that are critiquing their podcasts. And, you know, this podcast should not be irritating, or if it is irritating, make it irritating in the right way. Some other good news, there's been 100 total listens of the podcast, uh, 49 different listeners from all over the world. Again, I remind everyone that Soren is the guest here. It's not a seance, but he is here in spirit because we have his writing. And then it's my reflection and processing and adding to Soren's insights. So here we go. I'm on page uh, page 23, 23 here on the expectancy of faith. For the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to hopefully be just hardcore Soren. Um, we do not judge you for doubting because doubt is a crafty passion. He gets into a paragraph here where I'm not sure what his point is. Uh, so I'm not going to get into it because it doesn't seem to provide any additional clarity. But he says again at the end of the paragraph, doubt is a deep and crafty passion. And I agree with that. That is certainly true. Doubt is a crafty passion that creeps upon us. The expectancy of faith is uh, is then victory. The expectancy of faith, comma, then is victory. The doubt that comes... From the outside does not disturb it since it disgraces itself by speaking. Yet doubt is is guileful or on secret paths it sneaks around a person. And when faith is expecting victory, doubt whispers that that expectancy is a deception. Whispers. You know, it doesn't shout sometimes. One of the craftiest way to maybe undermine a person's cause is not to shout about it, but to whisper about it. Whisper, right? Whisper. Conspiracy. Hmm. On to a little bit further down. There's parts that I'm skipping because I don't sense they add much to this discussion. When the world commences its drastic ordeal, when the storms of life crush youth's exuberant expectancy, when existence, when existence which seemed so affectionate and gentle changes into a pitiless proprietor who demands everything back, everything that it gave in such a way that it can take it back, then the believer most likely looks at himself and his life with sadness and pain but he still says there is an expectancy that the whole world cannot take from me. It is the expectancy of faith, and this is victory. I am not deceived, since I did not believe that the world would keep the promise it seemed to be making to me. My expect my expectancy was not in the world, but in God. This expectancy is not deceived. Even now, I sense its victory more gloriously 
and more joyfully than I sense all the pain of loss. If I were to lose this expectancy, then all would be lost. Even now I have been victorious, victorious in my expectancy, and my expectancy is victory. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Just a reminder of what the expectancy of faith is. It doesn't mean the events themselves were good. Talked about Joseph in the last podcast. His life was hard and heavy and really unfair. But he said God was in it. It wasn't God was the author of it. It was God made the story make sense and make good come from it. Uh, Moving on to page 25 here. Uh, When all their efforts are crowned with success, when their days are pleasant, when in in a singular way they feel in harmony with everything around them, then they have faith. Then in their happiness, they most likely do not always forget to thank God because everyone will usually be thankful for the good he receives. But everyone's heart is also indulgent enough to want to decide for itself what is the good. When everything changes, when grief supersedes joy, then they fall away, then they lose faith, and more correctly, let us not confuse the language, then they show that they never had it. I'm not sure everybody gives glory to God when things are good. I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit more skeptical. I know Tom said that to some extent, that we should be that way. I know we should be, and I know Christians who are faithful are. But one of the, I would say this is probably one of the greatest dangers to a soul that I see in people, and I really try to avoid it myself, but I you know, obviously do it, is that uh, if you're, we're ungrateful for the goodness that we have. Now, some of you are in a tough time of life. I don't know what you're going through. Uh, I imagine there are stories out there that would be shocking. It's hard at this point to say that there's good things for you. I've been through those times myself. I've been through long periods where life just didn't make sense to me. I just held on for dear life, and the mast of my ship's life was cracked, and the the sails were torn, and the ropes had been thrown away and tossed everywhere because they were useless, and all I did was hold on to the mast of the ship and, you know, got to shore somehow and came back to life. And I'm in a more serene part of my life right now. But, you know, back in the fall, it was fairly difficult. My dad had a lot of health issues. I was the person that was responsible for 90% of the uh, care that had to occur until we got him to a place that he needed to be. It doesn't mean I did it all. It just means I did most of it just because I was available. And I'm close enough, fairly close, to help out. So even, you know... uh, now there's the you know piece again. Dang, three points off. Uh, I went through some difficult times. Uh, I have something up on my wall here. Gratitude is the um, fairest blossom which springs from the soul. And that's Henry Ward Beecher. And uh, he was the father, I think, of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And if you have not read that book, please do so. Uncle Tom gets a bad rap in the black, black community. I hope these people have actually read the book. Uncle Tom, even though he is a faithful individual and serves his master well, there are times that he doesn't follow the master's directive and it ultimately loses his life in the end because he refuses to rat out a runaway slave. 
Uh, so if people say you're an Uncle Tom, I hope, for goodness sake, that people have read the book and they're not just saying it because I don't think it's a fair characterization of Uncle Tom to call him a, uh, a compromised individual. He has more integrity than anybody else in that book. Uh, I want to switch over to this other book here, Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard. She says, uh, Claire Carlyle, Carlyle is a name of a town around here, and it said Carlyle, Carlyle. Uh, Kierkegaard is not an easy traveling companion, though he was by many accounts charming, funny, and compassionate, as well as endlessly, endlessly interesting. And that is a correct, accurate observation. Kierkegaard's parents gave him a name that means severe. Imagine naming your child severe. Who does that? Wow, that's, that's his dad in action right there. Gloomy dude. This father was gloomy. Kierkegaard's parents gave him, the, him a name that means severe. And he became more and more true to this name as he grew older. In concluding unscientific pros, pos, postscript, let me try that again. <coughs> in concluding unscientific postscript, written in his 33rd year, Kierkegaard argued that to become religious, a person must grasp the secret of suffering as the form of the highest life, higher than all good fortune. For this is severity of the religion, that it begins by making everything more severe. I'm going to read that over again. So this is in quotes right here. Uh, let me first use the, uh, the language of the writer here as I set up the quote. In concluding unscientific postscript written in his 33rd year, Kierkegaard argued that to become religious, a person must, quote, grasp the secret of suffering as the form of the highest life, higher than all good fortune, for this is the severity of the religious, that it begins by making everything more severe. End of quote. A few pa uh, pages later, however, uh, he described a religious person enjoying an excursion to Copenhagen's Deer Park, quote, because the humblest expression of the God relationship is to admit one's humanity and because it is human to enjoy oneself, end of quote. Real joy, he argued, always lies on the far side of suffering. So that's the end of the readings today in terms of the, uh, the, the books. But I, I want to just key on that ending statement that real joy, he argued, always lies on the far side of suffering. Let me blow my nose again. Again, I apologize. I could probably turn this off and restart it. But I, I don't want to do that. I just feel like it's starting to be manipulative. Now, if I was on a coughing jag and I had, would have to stop, I would. But anyway, that's just a quirky thing that I got going here. Again, the finalized quote here, where we're all heading to real joy, he argued, always lies in the far side of suffering. The far side. Reminds me of Gary Larson. Far side of suffering. 
Uh, I got about nine minutes left to do my thing in terms of processing the quote a bit. I think it's going to be about nine minutes, so help me God. <coughs> I mean that, so help me God, please, Lord. Um, one thing the suffering will do is expand your ability for suffering. Uh, I would say that when I was going through the PhD program, I took two sabbaticals, but for the most part I was full-time while working, and that's not the right way of saying it. I was full-time for a semester in the spring of 2002, so I took four courses in the spring of 2002, and I was on sabbatical, completely on sabbatical for that semester alone. And then I came off the sabbatical, worked at the school over the summer, did schedules. And for those of you who, let me see if I can phrase this properly. All of us went to high school and we got a schedule that came from the guidance counselor who are now called school counselors, more kinder, gentler name. School counselor sounds less heavy handed than guidance counselor. I don't know, it's just a, a sea change in our in our culture, and it's not all bad, of course, uh, but scheduling in, in high school is extremely difficult. It never comes out completely right. Uh, the computer does a certain amount of it. Sometimes it manufactures errors if it wasn't programmed correctly. I've had principals that were terrible at scheduling, never put in the work, didn't have the brains for it. And they might have been really good at other things, but scheduling wasn't in their wheelhouse, as they say. And then I've had principals and assistant principals that were really, really good at scheduling. But regardless, the schedules come out incomplete for most of the kids. There's very few that come out 100% right. And that does happen, but the struggle then is the kids want to drop courses that they signed up for and were recommended for. So I would spend most of my summer doing schedules and schedule changes and with email uh, becoming so prevalent. I could do a lot of it at home, so I didn't technically need to be at work. And this is before COVID even. Uh, COVID just made that even more official, being from home. <clears throat> but I would work most of the summer, and I didn't get paid for all the summer. I got paid for five days, and then had five days of compensation where I could substitute a work day and take that day off. I remember one time a member of the board happened to run into me when I was out for a jog, on this side of Columbia and he asked me why I wasn't at work and I said well you guys took away my five additional paid days on the board which you sit on and I used one of my comp days today it was just funny because he was coming back from some meeting on this side of the river and he thought like I got caught red-handed and he was a good guy he wasn't trying to bust me I guess but he had an element of suspicion in his voice when he saw me out running and we stopped and got chatting a bit and uh, I wish I could have gotten paid for those days but I'd probably work over the summer the equivalent of 40 days and got paid for five of them and then had five comp days we used to get paid for 13 and it's just the price of doing the job you know i just wanted people not to take it for granted and i felt like people did uh, and then the kids would want to drop all these classes that we spent all summer getting them into and so it was endlessly frustrating so i didn't miss that this summer that's for sure but I would tell you, like, the doctoral program and scheduling and just the job in general really expanded my ability just to put my head down and get work done, even though it was extremely hard, even though it was extremely stressful, and it was extremely painful. Um, when you go through really, really hard times, your capacity gets 
really, really, really expanded if you get through it. Uh, and it doesn't always have to be a tragedy. It can just be a hard thing, like a hard, good thing. Like you're training for, you know, an athletic event, a marathon. You know, it's amazing if you push and you push and you push. I'm not saying being crazy about like run through injury or, uh, you know, don't sleep properly. Like you have to still be balanced in the midst of this of this demand. Yet if you can really, really push the walls of your resistance and continue to push against them, it is amazing what used to be hard is no longer hard. It's just not hard anymore. Uh, after I got my PhD, scheduling was a lot easier. The PhD was extraordinarily difficult. It was hundreds of pages long. I had to cut out a lot of it. Uh, there were times I felt like I was going crazy. I almost quit the program. I threatened my advisor that if he wanted one more thing for my dissertation, I was going to have to quit. We had this huge fight over the phone on a Sunday night, and I just told him, like, you've got to accept what I've done. I can't do anymore. It was affecting my marriage. I was just like, I am done. And he backed down, fortunately, because I was, I'd already was like 75% finished at that point. But I couldn't take it anymore. And I would say that's been an attribute that I've been willing to push myself into hard things. And I didn't, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. One of the, I think one of the really challenging things about hard things, we know they're hard ahead of time. Like I was talking to a friend of mine about marriage the other night. He's thinking about getting married. And I, he said, you know, marriage is hard. And I'll give you advice based on me not doing it well. Like here's advice from somebody who didn't have a successful marriage. I'm not trying to be an expert. I just want to tell you, like, it is hard, and, you know, and you have to kind of have each other's back, and all your pain that you've had in the past that you think is done is not done. I talked about that in one of my other podcasts. Uh, so hardness is just like a function of being married. Now, there's support, and there's caring, and there's love, but, you know, after the honeymoon's over, and you, you settle down, and, and, you know, you start just kind of getting into a routine, And then if you have children in particular, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time just serving your kids, just getting them to to go to bed on time, put their shoes on correctly, not to throw their crap on the floor when they come walking in the house. I mean, it's hard to be a parent. It's extremely challenging, and it's not about you anymore. It's about your kids, you know, and I never had children, but the marriage itself was difficult. But I would say that, you know, going through really, really hard times, it makes you it makes you just stronger and be willing to push yourself. But the problem is, is even if you get into something, you know, it's hard. Like, it's good to tell people it's going to be harder than you ever imagined. Marriage, doctoral program, being a school counselor, running a marathon, uh, lifting, bench pressing 300 pounds. To get to that point, it's going to be so much harder than you expect you know they're telling you it's going to be hard but you don't know how hard it's going to be until you feel the fire that's just the way it is you will know cognitively if you believe the people that you've talked to that this is going to be hard but you have not felt the hardness until you do it and that's why i like this book written by claire carlisle where she says philosopher of the heart the restless life of soren kierkegaard what, what Soren did is he redeemed emotions. You know, he redeemed things like fear and trembling and joy. Uh, you know, where the age was headed to be very cognitive about philosophy, Soren was calling people back to understand this is real life here. This is not some textbook or some lecture in a, in a, college, in a college hall. 
so he did a lot to speak to the heart and to the subjectivity of our lives and to the pressure that we feel, that we know that life is important. We know it's not a joke. We know that it's serious. We know that there's struggles and hardness, but it's very emotional. And, you know, you want to align a person's philosophical orientation with their emotional life. You don't want it just to exist on paper. A person should live their philosophy. And that's something that, like, Ryan Holiday is really big on in terms of his his Daily Stoke podcast. Is Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe by your actions. And there's, like, four cardinal virtues in Stoicism. Let's see if I get them right courage, justice, wisdom, temperance. And it's funny, sometimes Ryan Holiday will switch around that term, those terms, like he puts them in different order sometimes. It's funny, I don't know why he does it. He's, he hasn't settled on pot how, but what the four order, word order should be. <clears throat> but I think it was Epictetus that said something to the effect, don't, don't tell me what you believe, show me what you believe. And he was making an example of some weights or some exercise equipment back at ancient Athens that was laying on the ground. You know, don't tell me you can lift that weight. Go lift it. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's cool. And uh, that's the end of today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I will contemplate the uh, the reality of having ads or not. I just don't know. I'll see. <laughs>